If you would, keep your Bible or your bulletin open to 1 Peter 4. Now pray. Father, we ask now that you would come by your Spirit through your Word and show us Jesus. And show us what it means even a little bit of how to put Jesus on display to the world by the way we live in our world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's strange that, well, not so strange that I had planned Uh, to begin this morning with a story about Mike. A story about the joy that I've had for the past year going over to his house almost every week and reading to him on Wednesday afternoons. And uh, when we first started doing this about a year ago, he chose a book called uh, Here is Your War by a Pulitzer Prize winning writer named Ernie Pyle who wrote, uh, he was embedded with the Army's troops in the uh, North African campaign of World War II. And um, Mike, being an Army man himself, um, Mike and Mary Ann coming from Army families, he Mike's dad fought in World War II, not in North Africa, but he was there. And so Mike wanted to uh, hear these stories that Ernie had written. Ernie would interview uh, what they called G.I. Joe, the common soldier. And he would get to know these guys and learn their stories. And he would write articles, stories that were sent back to the States and uh, were published in over 300 newspapers so that the American people could hear the stories of their boys on the front line and what it was like to be a soldier. Um, And I found it very ironic to read about stories about these men who were face-to-face almost daily with their own mortality face-to-face almost every day with, I could die. My friends are not coming back from their missions. Um, Death was everywhere. And uh, I found it ironic to be reading about their experiences to a man, a soldier, who knew he was dying. Um... And what Mike and I noticed as we read these stories is how focused these men were, how facing your own mortality and being in a battle uh, in which you could quickly and easily lose your life sharpens your focus, rearranges your priorities. Um, These men talked about how they didn't need much, they didn't need money, really. 
and the army would pay them, but they had nowhere to spend it in the desert in North Africa. Um, things just came into sharp focus and priorities aligned themselves. And, um, and I, I thought about that. Yes, that's what facing your mortality does. And here I was reading these stories to a man who knew it was coming. And in my conversations with some with Mike at first until he got to where he couldn't communicate with me, but Marianne would tell me some of the things that they had talked about that he was communicating to her. Um, he was a focused man before all this, but his focus uh, in his last days was, he told Marianne, I just want to be faithful with the time I have left. I just want to be faithful with the time I have left. That was said by a man who could, couldn't move, who couldn't talk. And we tend to think, What can you do with the time you have left? But I'll have you know that Mike Herzog was doing things in that chair. Not with his hands, not with his voice, once he lost that ability. But his heart was loving and serving. His eyes loved and served me every time I saw him. I know that many of you know that more than I do. If this is what Peter is urging us to do, he's saying to Mountain Fellowship, be faithful with the time you have left. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Let your mind focus. Let your priorities be put in order. Peter was writing to people who lived in Asia Minor, Christians who lived in Asia Minor, but, but in Jerusalem, where it all started, they didn't know they were five or six years away from the destruction of the temple by the Romans when Peter wrote this letter. And who knew what that, and that was something that Jesus had predicted to his 12, the destruction of the temple. It was coming soon. And so Peter knew that, that there was something coming soon. And who knew whether the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem would impact, obviously, not only the Jewish people, but also Christians throughout the world, who knew whether the Roman Empire was going to start to crack down on this little sect of Judaism, they thought, called Christianity. So Peter knew that in that sense, the end of all things was at hand. But all of the apostles in their writings characterize this time between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus 
one day. They called it the last days. Don't think left behind Armageddon. From the time Jesus rose from the dead until the time he comes back again, we are in the last days. And so the end of all things is at hand. And for us, we're even closer, 2,000 years closer than the ones who originally read this letter from Peter. And in our culture, where we're so afraid to talk about death, where we like to sanitize it and let's, let's push it out of our house and into some other place, um, Peter is asking us, what would it look like for us to be a church that lives like we know that time is running out? The end of all things is at hand, he says. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. For what? What am I to do? For the sake of, he says, your prayers, for the sake of loving one another, and for the sake of serving one another. I just briefly want to think about these together and then think about why this matters this week. Um, Peter is asking us, get your priorities in order. Pray, love, and serve. And each of those things is an act of death. Jesus said, anyone who wants to follow me, take, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So each of these things, prayer, love, and service, are all ways of denying ourselves, dying to ourselves, taking up our cross, and putting Jesus on display. I know that it's really easy that when Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, it's easy for us to skip over that and just go, okay, fine, great. And I know it's very easy to, when you think, even if you've been a Christian for 40 years, it's very easy when you see something about this for the sake of your prayers. It's, easily, it's easy to just think of that as, oh, that's that religious activity I do, that, that praying, and I'm not good at praying, and I don't want to talk about praying, so please, pastor, skip this point and move on. Prayers, prayers. But I, I want to I ask you to think, with me as I am learning what it means to pray. Don't think of, when you read prayers, don't think of it as a religious activity that good Christians do. Thinking, think of it as relational awareness, this awareness that I'm in relationship with the God of the universe as I go throughout everyday stuff. And prayer is talking to him about that everyday stuff. I've been in this, uh, what's called a praying pastor's cohort. It's this online group of about five or six pastors, and there's a man that's leading us to just think about what it means to pray as a pastor. You would think, well, why do pastors need that kind of help? Believe me, I need it. Um, but one of the things they're 
he's teaching us is to, to quit thinking about it as prayer requests. And he calls them prayer stories. So we'll get together and we're praying about different things. And he goes, what kind of prayer stories do we need to pray about together today? It's like, what is that? That sounds goofy, prayer stories. But what he's saying is, your story has threads, plot lines running through it, story threads running through it all the time, that the story writer who made you is wrapping your story up into his bigger story. And so let's talk to him about it. What is... What is the story? What is going on? Marianne, let's pray for Marianne. This thread of her story that she's seen coming, but you're never prepared for, or, or whatever it is, um, the child that you long to see do well, that's a thread in your story, in her story. Bring that thread of the story to Jesus, to God, your Father who loves you and is writing the story. So so rather than going, well, I've got a prayer request, see it as God is writing a story. And so then when he doesn't answer your prayers the way you want him to, you can talk to him about it. You say, okay, that didn't, you didn't do what I asked. (laughs) I don't see you do. So where are you going with this story? Father, where are, we, where are we going? What are you doing? What are you writing? A friend of mine the other day was talking about something he'd been asking me to pray about, something that's hard that he's dealing with, and, and he said something that was going on, and I wrote a texted back to him, the plot thickens, because that's what happens in your story. And so pray about this plot twist. And as I, so I'm learning to try to think of prayer more like that and less like this sterile religious activity that I do, requests that I make, God doesn't answer them, I get mad, I stop praying. Instead, prayer is communicating with the author of the story about what he's doing with your story, whether you like what he's doing or not. And another part of that is thinking about the difference between worry and prayer. The difference between worry and prayer. If I take the things I'm anxious about, and what I typically do is when I'm in the shower, scrubbing what's left of my hair, I, I'm like, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? This is what happens inside my heart. What am I going to do about this? How are we going to get that? What are we going to do? Who's going to, is my dad going to be okay? What, what are we, instead of just staying inside my head and worrying about it all, why do I not just shift and go, oh, Father, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about whether my dad's going to get better. See how easy it is to just shift from worry to prayer? All you're doing is acknowledging the relationship you have. It's a relational awareness that God is involved in the details of your life. And even if he's not involved the way you want him to, 
tell him. If you're anxious about it, turn it from worry to prayer. That's why Paul said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. He's your daddy. Pester him about it, like your kids do you. You know the interesting thing about that verse in Philippians? Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made to known to God. You know what it says right before that? The Lord is at hand. He's right there. So why not just talk about him? So Peter says, listen, the end of all things is near. The Lord is at hand. Would you engage him in prayer about the life he's given you to live until the end? Would you involve him? Which is kind of funny to say. How do you involve God in what he is involved in? You just acknowledge that he's involved in it. And to do that means you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to die to what it looks like for you to walk down the street mumbling to someone who's not there. (laughs) You're going to have to die to your own self-will when you say, not my will, but yours. And then he says, love. Love. What does love do? Verse 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is not saying that you should excuse the sins of others or enable the sins of others. This is not what he's talking about. He's actually quoting Proverbs 10:12 that Richard read earlier, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. What Peter is saying is that he understands that this external pressure that these Christians are feeling from the persecution and the the strangeness of being exiles, this external pressure that they're feeling is revealing internal cracks in their community. And so as they're going through what they're going through together as a church, relationally, the weaknesses between them start to come up to surface. The pressure is revealing the weaknesses among them. And there's there's some relational strife going on. And Peter's saying, the end is at hand. The end is near. Stay together. Forgive one another. Let your love for one another, one another cover all the multitude of little sins that, that you get all worried and been out of shape about. It's not excusing sin or enabling sin. It's saying, I'm going to give you grace to be a sinner because I'm one too. And show hospitality to one another without grumbling, he says. Hospitality is a heart of welcome, of welcoming these weird people that are part of your church family. People say, a church would be great if it weren't for the people. The church is the people. (laughs) And so I'll say it again. Are there people in this congregation that you just don't like? I hope so, because how else are you going to learn 
that love covers a multitude of sins. How else are you going to learn to show hospitality and welcome them without grumbling? How else are we going to learn to love like Jesus loves unless there's some people in here that are hard to love? And I've got stories that I can't tell you publicly, but I can tell you in my years in the church, especially in the last 10 years, God has taken a guy who's, who thinks he's a people person, who thinks he, it's, it's easy to love. Oh, I should be able to love anybody. And I guarantee you, I need help. I do not love people as well as I thought I did. And so, Peter is saying, love one another. And that's why he says, I, I skipped the word, but that's why he says, love one another earnestly. Because it's going to be hard to cover the multitudes of sins that so-and-so keeps having with grace. It's going to be hard to welcome into my life and my heart and my home without grumbling. I'm fine being hospitable, but I'm going to grumble about it. He doesn't allow that. It's going to be hard to do this, and so that's why he uses this word, which is an athletic word that means to stretch out with all you've got left. It literally means to stretch out. And it, I think I've said this before, but it reminded me of my high school cross-country days when I get to where I could see the finish line. Once I knew the finish line was soon, I would pour all the rest of my energy that I had and stretch out my, my, my energy to get to that finish line. That's what Peter's saying. We're almost there. So persevere in these hard relationships that are within the church. We're almost home. Don't give up. Keep covering each other with grace. Keep welcoming each other with grace. Don't give up. And to do that is going to require us to die to our preferences, to our comforts, And then he says, serve. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So he says, you're stewards of grace. A steward was a household manager who was the owner gave that person the resources to take care of the household. Jesus has stewarded us with his grace. You have received grace, now give it. Give it away. Give it away. And guess what? You're not going to run out if you keep giving it away. It's like those loaves and fishes. And how do we do that? We do that by speaking and serving. I'm so glad that he said there were two different ways we could do that because I like to talk. And I don't like to do things. But some of you don't like to talk and you like to do stuff with your hands. So speaking and serving, I heard a guy say that he teaches his children, and I think this is brilliant, 
So I want to learn this. I want you to share this with your children and grandchildren and the children of this church. God has given us superpowers. When I was a kid, I wanted to be Spider-Man so bad. I wanted to swing on a web. I wanted to shoot a web at my friend's mouth and shut it. I wanted to do everything. Man, I wanted to be Spider-Man. I think there's something in us that longs to have superpowers. That's why we like all those silly movies. But God has given us the superpower of speaking grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the very messages of God, you can do that in the life of your brothers and sisters. Paul said, don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouth but only that which gives grace to those who hear it. Grace, remember we said grace was uh, the face that love wears when it meets an undeserving person. It's, it's the, the favorable love of God resting on someone. God's smile, your words can give someone the smile of God. Your silence can save someone from, I'll say this, my silence could save someone from my foolishness. So words are a superpower. Speak the messages of God. Speak to someone's fear and say, you have a father who loves you. You have a friend who's with you. And your service, he says, serve in the strength that God supplies. So not only do we have the message of God, we have the might of God. And you can, you can give grace to someone just by the way you do something for them. It's amazing. It's amazing. But in order to do that, we're going to have to die to our self-service and our self-promotion. Our speaking is for the good, our speaking and our serving is for the good of our neighbors, and it's for the glory of Jesus. So why, why would anyone sign up for a life like that? Why would Mike, when he knew he was at the end of his life, why would he not just go, why don't you all just serve me? Thank you. Can't you see I'm dying here? Why instead did this man say, no, I want to be faithful with the time I have, with whatever strength I have, whatever abilities I have? Why is his wife <laughs> someone who First of all, would be the first to tell you that she doesn't do this, but they do this. Why would you want that kind of life? Why wouldn't you just want to take care of yourself? Because they are loved. Because they know what it means to be loved by a Savior who prayed for them, who loved them, who served them, who rescued them from their selfishness who rescued them from a life that's wasted on me, me, me. But that's what this Holy Week is about. 
Jesus rode into town. And if you read the story, and I invite you to do that this week, read again the story of this week. And notice that Jesus prays. He's communicating with his father constantly as he's carrying out the story that God has written for his life. He loves. John said in John 13 at the Last Supper that having loved his disciples, he loved them to the very end. And my friend T.M. Moore says he loved them to the end of his patience. He loved them to the end of his strength. He loved them to the end of his life. He did that for you. And he served. Jesus said, I don't I didn't come here to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, many self-focused, me-first people. So the reason we would want to live that kind of life is because Jesus lived that life in our place and he died for our refusal. He died to separate us from that me-first life. He died to renew us into a life that prays and serves and loves because it makes people see him. It makes people say, that looks like something different. That looks like, that smells like Jesus. And I want him. Father, would you do that in this church? You are doing that in this church. Would you continue to do that in us? Not to pray and love and serve because we're trying to get you to love us, but to pray and to love and serve because you do love us. And you're renewing us to become praying, loving, serving people. And that's, that's who we're made to be. It's freedom. It's joy. There's no greater adventure than to live that kind of life because that's the life you made us to live. That's the life you redeemed us to live, Jesus. So would you do that in us, even as we think about our friends, Mike and Mary Ann, and see how you've done that in them and you continue to. And now we ask that at this table, we would not only hear how much you love us, but we would touch and taste and smell and see how much you love us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.